in a good story, right? Even perhaps when we are the one telling it. And maybe we get halfway through chronicling the events of how we caught the biggest, best fish uh, the world has ever seen or something like that, and, and we lose track of the wider conversation. We have these moments when we have to pause in the middle of a story and ask ourselves, why was I telling you that again? I just got really into the story itself and I forgot why I was doing this. And we see there that stories have a point, which is why we tell them, right? And even though it's a lengthy story, and even though it's easy for us as readers to lose track of the reason, well, in Galatians 1.10 to 2.14, Paul told a story that has a profound point. It's a story about how Christ's church has received the gospel by revelation, and we stand united in that message. Or at least we should. Galatians is a letter to a church troubled by erroneous teaching. These teachers had split the church by saying that circumcision was a gospel issue. You have to be circumcised to be saved. That was their claim. And on his way to Jerusalem to attend the the first general assembly that would address that exact issue, Paul wrote this letter before us to correct the Galatians who had somewhat lost their way. And so in Galatians 1, 10 to 24, as we consider that section this morning, Paul begins his story. And he outlines how he learned the gospel and how he joined with the other apostles to accomplish a global ministry. So the main point this morning is that the gospel is God's message that brings people together. The gospel is God's message that brings people together. So our three points are a story with a point, the unity of the church, and gospel issues. So we're going to start with a story with a point. In this passage, as we said, Paul told a story. And this story was about his conversion to Christ, call to the ministry, and a few bumps along the way in that ministry. It's an interesting story as it details the major shift from Paul's former life in Judaism to his new commitments as an apostle commissioned to preach the gospel to the nations. As that story trails on, however, it can be easy to lose track of the the original purpose why Paul is recounting this story for us. And although readers often assume, because of some of the things that happen here, that Paul aimed to distance himself from the Jerusalem apostles and assert some sort of doctrinal independence, he was, in fact, very clear about his reasons for telling us these events. All the way back up in the, in the greeting, right, for this letter, he had stated that his apostleship was 
from Christ. Not from or through men, but from Christ, from the triune God. And so we have that introductory statement already about the divine origin of his calling. And then he rebuked the Galatians for listening to the the troublemakers who were teaching them that circumcision was addition for being saved. And and in verses 8 and 9, he argued that no matter who the messenger is, if they teach contrary to the received message itself, they are cursed. And the, the reason, the reason that he has said that point, that they are cursed, and that he says it again, is because he's trying to please God rather than man. He's happy enough if he offends erroneous teachers by cursing them because he's not concerned about their approval. And as then we come into Paul's story, he clarified in verse 11, namely, that he aims to please God with a man because, because the gospel itself is God's rather than man's. He says, for, because, because I would have you know, brothers, this is the, right, this is the reason why he's trying to please God rather than man, because I would have you know that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Why is the gospel God's rather than man's? Well, Paul explained, for, because, because I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul knew that he had his critics in Galatia who had, who had questioned his doctrine uh, and his authority. And so hence he had already alerted us to the divine origin of his role as apostle. And further, as soon as he claimed that his message is divine, he, he knew Right as, as he says that to, to these people where his critics are, he knew the reply was going to be, how do we know? How do we know your message is from God rather than just something that some human made up? And so Paul told his story to answer that question. He, his story answers the question how they know that his doctrine is not humanly created, but divinely revealed. He was not criticizing the Jerusalem apostles, nor distancing his authority from their authority, but defending the divine origin of his message. And so with that goal in mind, Paul recounted how he used to be so deeply committed to Judaism. He was so fervent that He was the leading persecutor of the church and the gospel itself. Notably, he he was zealous for the traditions of his fathers, verse 14, which included circumcision. The very thing that he's pushing against at this point. I was committed to that. But when Christ summoned him to faith on the Damascus road, he, he discarded 
zeal for those things in exchange for preaching the true gospel. Salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. How, how can they know, how can we know that Paul's gospel is divinely revealed rather than humanly invented? Well, Paul used to be committed to something radically different. And moreover, he used to be violently committed to the traditions which could ground the very demand for circumcision unto salvation. And so the special revelation from Christ directly to Paul is the only way to explain such a radical shift. So Paul's narrative is a story with a point. And the reason is to defend that his gospel was from God. It was God's own gospel. That brings us to our second point this morning. The unity of the church. I think that the question that jumps out for us as we, as we read through this story and as we see the, the next bits of it too in, in weeks ahead concerns Paul's relationship to the other apostles. Right, in the, in the verses before us, why did he so emphasize that he, that he didn't consult with any of them? With any of these other church leaders, starting in verse 15, he writes, but when, so he's giving us a a temporal marker there, when he who has set me apart, literally translated, in my mother's womb, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So that's all the when. And then he comes to tell us his point. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So Paul here in in this uh, section does, does a couple of things. First, he connects his calling, his calling as an apostle, to the calling of Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah 1 5. And Isaiah 49, uh, 5 and 6 make explicit statements about how God set these men apart from the womb. That's a, that's a phrase taken from these prophets' description of their calling. They were set apart from the womb for the prophetic task. And Paul, too, saw that God set him apart for the apostolic task of being the light to the Gentiles. Now, other than that, some have taken Paul's delay in, go, in going to Jerusalem as a, as a statement of independence from the apostolic circle, as, as if he considered himself a, a lone wolf in ministry or something like that. But, but that's not the case either. Rather, even as we get into this later section of of the verses we're considering today in this section of Paul's story, Paul's point is still, it's still to establish the same thing that the gospel came to him by revelation. 
He's not trying to criticize someone else. He's trying to establish that the gospel is divinely revealed. Now, how how does his delay to see the Jerusalem apostles make that point? Because Paul was in ministry for a significant amount of time and preaching the gospel before he met the Jerusalem leaders. Paul went and did ministry in Arabia and in Damascus and preached the gospel among the nations in those places. He was preaching the gospel message before he met the Jerusalem leaders. He had the gospel because he was delivering it. But since he had not gone to Jerusalem, we know, he received it by revelation rather than human instruction. Now, why is that important? What significance does that have? Certainly not because it makes some divide between Paul and the other apostles. Rather, it's important because it shows us, it shows us the consistency of the divinely revealed gospel. Some messengers had altered the gospel and were preaching an inaccurate message. But the revealed gospel had been clear enough to announce. And and we see that point because eventually Paul did go to Jerusalem. Verse 18 and 19. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas or Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So so this is Paul's insider perspective on the trip that he and Barnabas took to Jerusalem in Acts 9, 26-31. So Paul had been preaching, he'd been ministering, and decided he needed to connect with Peter. So he went to Jerusalem. Then, after three years, it's likely, right, that in, back in Galatia, It's likely that the false teachers who were requiring circumcision were trying to set the Jerusalem apostles against Paul to diminish his authority. We, we are from Jerusalem, the prestigious place, right? That's where the revelation has happened. And And if Paul has said something other than what we are saying to you, you should just listen to us. Not not apostles, just guys who had shown up from Jerusalem. Paul's response was, by the way, even though my message is revealed and I didn't need to learn it from men, by the way, I have been to Jerusalem. And those guys may not have known that. These guys that are luring you away from the accurate accurate gospel, may not have known that because I spoke only to Peter and James and was only there for two weeks. But I have been there. And for your information, Peter and James approved my message and my ministry when I was there. And so Paul's point was to continue his argument that the gospel was revealed to him. Part of the evidence was the unity of 
the church, the Jerusalem apostles, Peter and James, had agreed with him about what the gospel is, even though he didn't learn it from them. Two people have the same message, even though they hadn't met. And so his, his meeting with Peter and James then highlights the unity of the church in our message as a divinely revealed gospel. That brings us to our final point. Gospel issues. Gospel issues. Sorry, the, what we have before us at this point are, are these two uh, aspects of this passage. The, both the story of Paul's conversion and call, along with the unity of the Jerusalem apostles with Paul, demonstrates that the gospel is divine revelation rather than human invention. And we see that, so calls, Paul's conversion and call, and then set next to the unity of uh, the Jerusalem apostles with Paul, shows that the gospel is from God. And so we see the apostle highlighting both that the gospel comes from God and that the church truly is together in true doctrine. Well, what can we take away from that? And I think that there are a few implications that we can highlight and and draw together, even just from Paul's story so far. Right. So the first thing that we can do is we must always remember who our authority is. Paul didn't cave to an erroneous message even when the messengers came with a prestigious set of credentials because he wasn't trying to please man but please God. Reputation of men did not impress him simply because he knew what God had said. So, Christian, know your authority. Know that we take our lead in faith and practice from the Scripture, not from the world. And I want I want to get more specific here, and I want to talk to our young people, namely covenant children, because because kids, people increasingly want to speak into your lives to bring you and your beliefs in line with the world and its values. People who have no real right to speak into your situation about what to believe increasingly insist upon their authority that you listen to their message. Children of the church. It it is easy in that situation to become convinced that you have to listen to them. Because they're telling you, you have to listen to them. They might indeed insist that you must heed their message. 
your authority and faith and practice is the Lord Jesus Christ. You need not heed their instruction, any instruction about faith and practice that comes from a source that opposes your Lord. The teachers from Jerusalem insisted that the church hear them because of their status. And Paul reminded us that we take our lead from Christ, not from people who insist on their status. And so, children, do not feel that you have to bow to any authority in what they teach if it is not Jesus Christ. Second thing, second thing. So we have know know your authority. We have be accountable to others. Be accountable to others. We see that even though, even though Paul knew his message was accurate, right? There's no better way to, to know that you are right than for Jesus himself to show up and explain something to you. And Paul had that. But he still acknowledged that others also have insight and authority alongside him. Paul knew his message was accurate, but checked with Peter and James anyway. He was happy enough to be far above reproach in the way that he went about things. And so, Christian, perhaps we too should mark ways that we can check in with other believers. Be accountable. Get insight and help from those alongside us. When we have big decisions to make, heavy issues on our hearts, or thoughts about what may be true about doctrine or practice, we may be very convinced that we are right. We may have every reason to think that we are right. And it is still good practice to take these things to our good counsel, trusted counsel, and so work to bear one another's burdens in this way. And that again highlights for us a united church. Right? A united church where Christians work together in the Christian life, striving after faithfulness together. Being accountable, not in a harsh way, but in a helpful way, certainly. Third, so we've got know your authority, we've got be accountable, and third, we've got that God determines what the gospel issues are. And I think this one is important. God, God determines what the gospel issues are. We live in a time in which various ministries and organizations pride themselves on attaching the label gospel to everything they promote. And the fallout of this tactic is that they turn every issue into a gospel issue. And what I, what I, I think, right, charity says, because I, I think this is a lack of clarity rather than error, and I want to be clear about that. What I think they actually mean is that whatever topic uh, they're talking about is an important issue. And certainly there are many, many, many important issues but not every issue, not every important issue 
is a gospel issue. The teachers from Jerusalem claimed that the practice of circumcision is a gospel issue. Right? Their point? You have to practice it to be saved. So it's a gospel issue now. Salvation's at stake in this matter. That is the implication whenever we make an issue into a gospel issue. Unless you get this right, you cannot be saved. That's how a gospel issue works. And that, my friends, is a dangerous game to play. Because the gospel is the essential message that unites the church. Right, so we, as the church, must agree about the gospel and to remain united, we cannot, we cannot make every issue, every important issue even, every issue that we should take up and think about, we still cannot make those into a gospel issue if it's not a gospel issue because we need to see that Christ saves people who disagree with us even about important issues. The person next to you may see things very different on a few important things. And even if they're wrong, Christ forgives them. If they go to him in faith, they belong to Jesus. And we cannot insist that our opinions, even about important matters, determine someone's salvation. So, let us be discerning about what truly are gospel issues. Whenever a specific social agenda becomes a gospel issue, it means that if we're not right, if we are wrong about the politics of that, or whatever cause it might be, if we're wrong about it, we aren't saved if it's a gospel issue. I think so. We should be very slow to accuse others of violating gospel issues just because a particular uh, topic is very close to our heart. It can be close to our heart. That's fine. That's good. And we can talk about it. And we can work together. But this this lands most pointedly in that because God has has revealed the gospel. God has revealed the gospel, so it belongs to Him. So He is the one to determine what gospel issues are. We do not get to take the things that are important to us and make them the gospel because the gospel is a human affair. It's the divine message. We, then, should be a church united by the gospel, not split and divided by every preference or cultural issue. And thankfully, praise God, that is not a problem here. That is not the point I'm making. But we still strive after even what God has blessed us with. Now, there are, right, when we think about that, we're still thinking, but some of these things are important. Yes, there are implications of the gospel, even that are essential for the Christian life. 
But we know, we know that even the gospel has those implications. We, we are aware of that, and even we who are aware of the gospel's implications are still guilty of living inconsistently with our profession of faith. We don't get it right. We don't act in accord to our profession in all instances. And so, we certainly hope we, that we would not escalate failure to living, in, to living consistently with our faith into a gospel issue. Because by the end of it, if living inconsistently at times in various matters, if living inconsistently with our profession means we're not saved, none of us would be saved. Cancel culture would eat us alive because our sin does mean that we deserve to be canceled, not only in the world's eyes, but in God's. And that, though, Christian... Or if you're not a Christian, because our guilt in in living even inconsistently with the things we know, not just not only with the things that we don't profess to be true, but the things we claim are true, even our guilt there is why the gospel is so precious and why we are glad that God, God himself, is the one who defines the good news. It is not subject to human insistence, but only upon God's announcement of salvation in Jesus. It makes known that all who belong to Christ are freed from the power of the present evil age and made members of the new creation. In Christ, we have perfect freedom. And so even though we are not a perfect community, we are still glad to be part of this community, this church, who gathers under the gospel and belongs to our Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we are glad for this message the gospel brings us together as your church, that the gospel is the thing that makes us united, that the gospel is what can help us to overcome, uh, not the, is, is what overcomes certainly our failures and guilt, but can also help us overcome our divisions, our disagreements, if we have them, and bring peace to your people. And we pray that as we consider these things, that we would follow Paul's example that we would know our authority because that frees us from what the world commands us. It frees us to know that we can listen to Jesus Christ no matter what prestigious people in the world might say. It frees us from being burdened by every demand of the society around us. Help us to live together well as the church. Be accountable. Share the things going on. Check in with one another that we might find support and give support. And help us, Lord, to be humble 
about the things we insist upon. Help us to strive together in patience, knowing that we all fall short, knowing that we all need grace, but most importantly, knowing that we do find grace in the Lord Jesus. And so we pray that as we consider that, all of us would be encouraged in our knowledge of Christ, our reminder of the gospel, and also if there are those here who do not know Christ, that today would be the day that that changes, that you would make it known personally to them, break through the, the, the walls of unbelief, and bring them to trust in the Savior, that they might have freedom and there might be more voices glorifying you. We do pray these things in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen.